0: I think we are a long way from autonomous vehicles replacing human drivers. You know, there are two areas where autonomous functionality in vehicles is not permitted to operate. One is school zones and the other is work zones because they are two notoriously unpredictable stretches of roadway. PSS does not believe that traffic control devices, you know, existing traffic control devices, that we're going to see any reduction in temporary traffic control devices needed on the roadway in the near future.
1: Welcome to the bike lane. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. With us today is Ben Gascoigne, Vice President and General Manager at PSS. PSS doesn't just talk about innovations for safety, they live it. For over 40 years, PSS has pioneered breakthrough solutions that can safeguard work sites and save lives. Through continuous innovation and education and training, they work to save lives today, tomorrow, and for decades to come.
0: Ben, welcome to the bike lane. Hi, Jake. Thank you for having me. Appreciate the invitation and thanks for the introduction.
1: Absolutely. Well, here in the bike lane, as our listeners know, we're all about safety and creating safer roads. And one of the things that is somewhat unique and interesting around PSS is you guys have been doing this for a long time. So before we get into connected products and, and work zone safety and all, and all that. What, what's the backstory about PSS? Like what, like give us a, just a kind of a rundown about where you guys came from and, and where you guys are at today.
0: PSS was founded in 1982. It was an offshoot of a uh, vacuum forming company that was custom or a contract manufacturer before, you know, a number of automotive companies. And uh, when PSS was founded, um, David A. Cowan was the, he was the owner, and um, two years in, he hired David E. Cowan, his son, to help run uh, PSS. And the the only product at that time was um, an orange barrel. So the company was trying to figure out a, a better way to make a, an orange barrel. And uh, lo and behold, forty years later, uh, David A. is still involved in the company. David E. is running it, and uh, I'm his. Uh, I'm David E.'s nephew, a third generation uh, family run company. So. Um, and 30, 30 person company based out of Cleveland, Ohio and, uh, going strong.
1: Awesome. Yeah. You know, I, I think that the fact that you guys have that family business feel and that, that just strong culture and vibe is, is fantastic. And you guys are based out of Cleveland, but you've got some folks all over what, what markets or what areas do you guys cover
0: at PSS? We sell uh, nationally and internationally. So we have uh, representation uh, overseas and we have um, seven different uh, direct sales reps that are, are regional managers stationed around the country from East Coast to West Coast um so we are, our reach is uh well beyond cleveland right the majority of our business is probably outside of ohio but nonetheless we we do uh we're, we're committed to to staying in cleveland
1: i want to say that for those that are uh loyal to the bike lane podcast i want to say you're the fourth guest we've had on the show from from ohio so including uh, myself and kellen Pooker and i think Few others, so I don't know. It was about Ohio people, but we we tend to we tend to do our right. So, well, let's get into it. Let's talk a little about safety. So
0: that's part of the selection criteria, isn't it? For for getting on here,
1: <laughs> I I who knows it might be a, a a slight bias there towards towards the the Ohio people. Well, let's get into safety. So let's talk, start off historically around works on safety. Most of our listeners are coming at this from automotive mobility micro mobility, bicycles, scooters, that sort of thing. So, so work zone I, I've learned just by, by working with you guys is a little bit different. So historically, how are products developed for
0: the work zone? In general, the answer is slowly. I guess that's maybe the cheeky answer, but actually I'd recategorize the question as how products are developed for temporary traffic control, not just for work zones, because work zones are only one type of temporary work site that utilize, uh, TTC, temporary traffic control products. So in instances requiring PSS products, for example, um, would be new road construction, road maintenance, utility operations, surveying sites, special events, like I think of like a marathon, roadside assistance, traffic incident management, emergency responders. So the list goes on and on, which is a lot broader maybe than just work zone, um, though that's traditionally where we target our products. So.
1: Within that that space, I mean, I I actually love the the cheeky answer of slowly because it it takes time. Because I mean, there's a there's a human element here. It's you can't just push this down someone's throat. There's an expectation that when you see an orange barrel as a driver, that means construction, which means there may be people out there. uh, Or in Michigan, uh, we say we have two seasons: winter and construction, which means there's construction about to take place. And not knowing the difference, we'll get to that in a little bit about active, uh, active sites, but like within the development process, is this something that, that private companies like you guys would have to like pull a requirement that's set and then, and then go develop a product that meets said requirements, or is it
0: a lot more prescriptive even than that? There is a difference in how we approach uh, the product development process, depending on whether, uh, the product that we're intending to develop is for pedestrian traffic control or vehicular traffic control. So two different, uh, two different angles, but state specs are something that we, uh, we look at. So when, when we're going to develop a product, um, we aim to understand whether we want the product to comply with an existing category of product as a state agency you know, defines it, the, the grouping under which the state agency would approve the use of that product on its roads, uh, alternatively if we're developing a product that falls outside of traditional traffic control categories, then we need to ensure that the the problem we're solving is important enough to state agencies for them to support development of a new category of product. So RoadQuake is one product, a temporary portable rumble strip that PSS invented, that fell outside of, of any existing category of product. And what that means is it's a lot longer of a, of a cycle to um, introduce the product uh, what it does, its potential safety impact, and to garner the trust and support from state agencies to uh, demonstrate the product or to implement it into roadway operations.
1: Let's talk about that a little bit. So, so you mentioned about the the Raptor product and in, in Roadquake. So, let's talk about like, w- let's go way backwards. So, like, what is a rumble strip? And I mean, I think we all have experienced them, but what are they? Why are they there? How long have these things been in existence? Why would you even want a temporary one? Like what? And then, like you mentioned about that process development because it was a new category. T- can, like, tell us a story about that. Like, how did like how long did that take? How did that go through? So let's start off first with like the basics about what a rumble strip is, because I think there's a lot of carryover we're seeing now with uh, safety products for. Bikes, scooters, and others. But like, there's some really good lesson learned here about like wh- how you guys have approached this for things that have nothing to do with what we typically do with day in, day out. But let, let's talk about this like rumble strips. Like, what's the, what's the history around this and why are they
0: there? So, traditionally, motorists think about rumble strips. It's probably the ground in or milled in rumble strips that are either on the shoulder so that if you start to veer off of the lane of traffic, right? You, you tires run over the uh, rumble strip and it It wakes you up and you start paying attention to where you should be paying attention. And then there are also milled-in strips or milled-in rumble strips that might be used uh, on the center line or even transversely. I think if if you're on a, uh, at least in Ohio anyway, the turnpike used to have them ground into the road as you'd approach the toll booth. That's an example of a permanent rumble strip. There are long-term rumble strips that might be glued down or adhesive, and those would be for longer-term construction operations. So... If you've got a lane shift, for example, you're coming up on a, on a work zone, there might be um, glue down strips. I know in, in Kansas, uh, Michigan, for example, but, you know, in the early 2000s, PSS was um, had a close relationship with the then Kansas DOT safety director who was named Mike Crow. And um, Mike shared with uh, our national sales manager at the time an issue, a trend that he saw, which was disturbing. And it it came after three crashes within two weeks on U.S. 50 in Kansas, uh, repaving on the roadway there, and there were three end of queue crashes. So you know traffic builds up at construction, right? And then somebody's driving along, not paying attention, and they drive into the back of the uh, the queue of of cars and. Unfortunately, it led to nine fatalities. So in two weeks, there were three fatals with nine people who uh, perished. And it's, it's, not, it's not acceptable. And Mike, he realized that a lot of these, and the most deadly of these NICU crashes resulted from semi-trucks driving, and either the, the drivers were uh, potentially uh, fatigued or in a fog, you know, in a daze, um, zoned out, or distracted. And again, distracted driving, as we know now, right, is not limited to uh, semi-truck drivers, right? I mean, every, every person driving on the road at some point has been distracted while driving, unfortunately. But at the time, distracted driving was not something that was part of our daily lexicon, if you will. And Mike Crow saw this as a, an up-and-coming trend. And he told PSS, he said, I need a way to get inside the cab of the vehicle and wake people up. I need to wake these drivers up. As they're approaching a, a work site. He told us, he said, if you could make a temporary portable rumble strip or a temporary rumble strip, he said, I would put them in all my work zones. And that, you know, little did we know that that would start decade plus <laughs> long development cycle. But, you know, we've, we've been working on uh, roadquake rumble strips over 15 years now. Uh, so what we developed is a, a rumble strip that unlike conventional rumble strips, it, it's not glued, nailed, or adhered to the ground in any way. Um, based on the, just the, the sheer weight, the geometry of the, the strip and the engineered polymer with which it's, it's made, it stays on the road up to 80 mile an hour speed limits, 80,000 pound semis. And our, the first major adopter, first state to, to adopt this uh, widely for a conditional requirement was the uh, Texas Department of Transportation and flagging operations. We're, we're proud that RoadQuake has played a, a pivotal role in reducing work zone fatalities and injuries, um, especially with NFT crashes.
1: Yeah, I, I love the the outcome and and making sure that you know for people that were injured that 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 there was a solution that it's like you know we could do better. Before we get into a little bit on tech, I I want to I put a pin on this one. It's like you mentioned about getting into the cab, getting into the vehicle, and it's almost I was thinking to myself like for any of the millennials or Gen Z's listening to this, it's like, this was like Waze notifications before there was Waze. This is like analog Waze. And um, (laughs) uh, so I I think that when, and we're going to get to that a little bit in the show here, but I want to also talk a little bit about the experience because we all know that technology is not enough. You have to be able to deploy it you got to be able to make sure that it's safe and it's not going to create any adverse effects. And it's a process. And you talked about, you you know, going through a state DOT and then you mentioned contingent or, uh, did you say contingent approval? Um, uh, like it, it was coming?
0: But yeah, we, we use the phrase conditional requirement. So state, yeah, the DOTs and their standards, they'll, uh, they'll say, you know, if, if uh, certain conditions are met, right, if the work zone or or work site is on a roadway with a posted speed of X and it's going to be a duration of Y and a few things, right? Then then you shall do X, Y, or Z. And and that's why we call it a, a conditional requirement. From a process standpoint, do you feel like all of the
1: stakeholders were engaged? And when you took the challenge, I mean, I think what's great about starting with a problem that the technology can solve, we always want to say always be a problem that technology can solve, not technology looking to solve a problem you had that problem and that can get people in the room. But as you were going through this process for the the rumble strips and making these temporary rumble strips, uh, how did you approach the testing process then and like getting other stakeholders on board that this was something that was ready to have that, that on-road use case?
0: It was helpful that this was such a significant pain point for agencies that there was a willingness to put faith in PSS to go out and put a product on the road that people may not have um, may not have known sort of how it was going to play out. But that being said, I, I don't mean to suggest that, you know, we just took products that, that may not have been potentially safe and threw them out on the road, All right? We did plenty of development and testing on our own before uh, getting uh, to go out on, on a specific roadway, maybe in Colorado or Kansas or Missouri, or Texas to to put rumble strips out and, and evaluate with uh, alongside the crews of the state agency, you know, or county city, the effectiveness of the, the product. And there were what, we, you know, our engineering team considered plenty of failures on the, on the early uh, side where the, the durability of the product was not where we wanted it to be. But um, every time we interacted with the end users and saw the reaction, right, we were um, encouraged to continue development. So, even when our engineer team was disheartened by maybe a, the subpar performance from their perspective 12 years ago, there was never a waiver from those road workers, right, the vulnerable road users who are out there. There was never a waiver that this was a problem that that our product wasn't addressing. Mm-hmm. And they, so for us, I mean, that was – it was just – along the, the way, even though it's it's not been a straight line, there's been a consistent theme of support, right? That this is a top priority to solve.
1: And, and you have the product, right? So you know, like when the product's installed is how it's going to work, but you also have to figure out how do you install the product in a safe way? How do you deploy it in a safe way? So you guys came up with a really awesome, innovative way of getting these products down without putting more workers in harm's way, just to make more workers safer once it's deployed. So what did you got? Like talk about the I want I want you to talk about like the deployment system, which is in my mind, and this is partly like, because this is Detroit part of me coming out, almost as cool if not cooler, than the actual rubber strips <laughs> themselves.
0: Well, you know, don't be uh don't be distracted by the flashiness of of the Raptor, which is what you're uh you know alluding to our rumble strip handling machine, right? The the star of the show is Roadquake, right? Um the handling systems that PSS has developed over the past uh, eight plus years um, to support the use of uh, Roadquake. Are just that they're there to support the use of Roadquake, right? So the the primary problem that Roadquake solves is distracted or and fatigue driving entering temporary work sites. And Raptor uh, for us, it, it, after we developed the product, so our rumble strips are 100 105 pounds a piece, so they're not light and we've developed a number of ergonomic solutions to facilitate the deployment, but you know, another topic or opportunity for advancing safety that we, we saw was reducing road worker exposure. You asked about the sort of the, the scope of PSS's business. Um, Roadquake is used in Switzerland and uh, it's a, a shorter uh, strip. So it's a smaller strip. I guess their lanes are narrower over there. Our cars are bigger here in the U S in case. In there. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, uh, there was a company that developed a smaller machine to help deploy our our product uh, in Switzerland, and we reached out to them and we said, "Hey, we you know we think we want to do this in the U.S. because, you know, it's it's important for producing road worker exposure." So, uh, we worked collaboratively to de- develop a what is now the raptor so a product that uh deploys using magnets i mean it's it's got hydraulics it's got it's got all the fun bells and whistles but the primary mode of of deployment and retrieval of rumble strips is using a magnetic bar and you know allows somebody from the cab of a vehicle to deploy reorient uh and retrieve road quick rumble strips from the road
1: yeah so it, it, in other words it's like i remember seeing construction workers out there swinging the barrels from one side of the lane to the other as we're whizzing by them going at freeway speeds and this this keeps this this keeps that the the work from inside the cab of a vehicle that could have flashing lights and uh, And also the system it's kind of like this like zamboni like thing that's that's doing this. I know in Boston they got this awesome machine that moves the lane over, so like like one depending on what direction in Boston you're going, the lane <laughs> yeah. shifts it's like this Zamboni thing that picks up the concrete from one side of the lane to the other. You guys have this Raptor machine that can um, lay down and retrieve these rumble strips and where I'm getting back to point here is that it it's like if you just had the rumble strips without a method of deploying them and keeping people safer it, it might've been enough. And I, I love your term about like, let's make sure that like, who's the star of the show. But I almost feel like in a way that like, even though the, the strip is the star of the show, if you don't have that, that trusted way of deploying it, so you're not going to cr- increase more dangerous areas. You, you don't want to create more incidents by your system. So like you have the, the Raptor that enables the deployment of the strips so that everybody's safe uh, as safe as they they could possibly be, of course, I mean, nothing's perfect, but like everything's safe in that deployment as well. So it's like this, this case of like, not just here's the technology we're using. It's also like, how do you deploy it and and how do you, um, then distribute it in a way where you're not requiring people to spend millions of dollars on, on, on a new, uh, Zamboni thing that's going to go up and down the road. I mean, this can fit on a, a number of vehicles, right?
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think about how to translate this into the tech world, but it's almost like the user experience, the UI UX, right? It's like the UI UX of of using RoadQuake is the Raptor, right? It's like we're taking this out to the the physical world, um, trying to to make it easier to use the product, um, especially in situations where it would not be safe based on the volume of traffic, the ADT might be too high. To safely have somebody out on the
1: road. And that's really where we're at in the bike lane about having people safe on the road. So let's let's transition a little bit. So there so there's a core area you guys have been in, have done a lot of innovation at PSS around general road safety. But people on the road, you've got work zone workers, but there's there's also other people that normally wouldn't be on the road. They normally would be in their own pedestrian lanes, which is sidewalks, um, or they'd be on a bike lane. If they're a bicyclist, maybe it's protected, but, uh, there, there's a lot of people out there that when something shut down for, for them to, to get around. So let's talk a little bit about maybe just starting off with like the ADA community where, uh, like I, I gotta think that for myself, uh, if I see a, a cone in the middle of a, a pothole or something, or, or the sidewalk shut down, I'll just walk around it. But that may not be as simple for, for people that, that have a disability that, that, um, aren't going to be able to see that or, or hear, or, or be, be able to, to, um, navigate equally. So like, talk about how you, like some of the history on PSS around ADA and, and just people that
0: shouldn't be in the road, but we're putting them into the road. And how do you accommodate that? So you're alluding to our efforts on pedestrian accessibility, pedestrian uh, traffic control. And PSS has been for the uh, 10, uh, 13, 10 to 13 years, right? We've been um, leading our industry in developing products to facilitate accessibility and detectability in pedestrian work zones. You know, this this takes the form of barricades that are accessible, detectable to close a sidewalk, right? It's, so it's something... Uh, Jake and I, were, you and I were talking before we started recording that, um, and the cone bar came up. I don't know. Everybody probably knows what a cone bar is, where you have two cones and there's a bar that goes between it. So it's called a cone bar. So just a, a spoiler alert, a cone bar is not an accessible way to close a sidewalk. You know, 31 plus years ago, right, the, in the U.S., the Americans with Disabilities Act was passed, and we're fighting for the enforcement. Of accessibility, you know it's it's a long process, but um, you know the more people who know that accessibility is uh, is everybody's right, and um, for example, when a contractor shuts a sidewalk down with a comb bar, that is not a compliant way to close a sidewalk, and it's not accessible. Uh, it does infringe on the rights of individuals, uh, pedestrians, especially those w- with uh, mobility disabilities. For example. Or low vision and members of the BVI community, the blind visually impaired community, and a lot of cities, they grant permits with plans that are not accessible, and so it's easy to blame the contractor, right? In my own head, I do walking around my neighborhood, I'll see this, and I get so frustrated. And, um, I have to recognize that it's not the contractor's fault, right, or the utility company's fault, right, because because they apply for a permit and they're granted a permit, and it comes down to educating, and this is a, a big aspect of what we do at PSS, too, is educating agencies, local municipalities, counties, cities, states, on what is accessibility as far as pedestrian traffic control, right? What What is an accessible barricade? What does it look like? Man, the manual and uniform traffic control devices, the MUTCD, I can't believe we've made it this far, Jake, without Saying the that word the uh, MUTCD,
1: and we'll put a link to that in the uh, in the description. Until I got into uh, this this type of topic, and it's only been about a year for me in the topic of uh, uh, work zones and 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 alike in um, traffic control. The MUTCD wasn't on my radar because I was mostly focused on green paint. And um, I, I, there's so much that we can learn from the process of the MUTCD and just the way in which they organize that information that is super
0: useful as we get into connected safety. Absolutely. The last version of the MUTCD was published in 2009. So it's been, it's been a hot minute. But this year, we're expecting the, the next update or the next version of the MUTCD to uh, be published. You know, the last version did provide guidance on accessibility and work zones. But this is an area where, you know, there's still a lot of room for us to improve. And the standards that are out there, right, so taking the ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, and and turning that into practice, right, that's what the METCD is trying to do. We're drawing from the um, ADA accessibility guidelines, uh, but that, I believe, primarily focuses on indoor uh, accessibility. And then also uh, we're drawing from PROWAG, P-R-O-W-A-G, the Pedestrian Right of Way Accessibility Guidelines. But that pertains primarily to to, uh, permanent facilities. So there's a, a little bit of a gap in information on accessibility and temporary facilities. And that's where um, we, PSS has tried to lead uh, the way in, in helping provide some some structure and obviously leaning into the work that's already been uh, put into the, the METCD. So a lot of cities who, you know, permitting offices in cities, um, they just do not necessarily have the bandwidth to, interpret the MUTCD and all of the standards um, and, and regulations for accessibility. So I, I think a big part of this is just making sure that the those listening to this podcast even know that uh, there is a proper way, right, to, to to set up pedestrian work zones so that individuals with disabilities are not disenfranchised. And that means, you know, providing alternate routes. It might mean providing a curb ramp. To, uh, for a curb transition to go around a closed sidewalk and, and having a, a protected path, or uh, as we like to call it, a temporary pedestrian access route or TPAR. Or it might mean having a, an audible warning device that informs individuals of the BVI community that there is a sidewalk closure uh, approaching and, and provides some guidance as to what to do. It's as much about educating uh, the powers that be about what best practices look like as it is product development. So it's law, right? ADA is law, but we're still trying to figure out how to implement those standards uh, uniformly.
1: Yeah. You mentioned earlier about education and it, it comes down to informing people that have the ability to make roads safer. So you said earlier, you don't blame, blame the contractor. I think that's a really good carryover from what we've seen in our work on V to X and and communication safety is that regardless of what system you're going to use, you have to have good communication on these systems are available and why these mean, uh, what these can mean for different communities. For example, within the infrastructure bill, we've got language uh, referring to beaconing. Well, there's thousands of cities and even the big cities that are working with this, they don't have the resources to be experts in our specific language of beaconing and understanding the Society of Automotive Engineering (SAE) standard community, and which is similar to what you're saying, Ben, about the MUTCD requirements and understanding what's available. So, education is just is just going to be such a m- big component. I always think of it as is definitely a leg of the stool of of all work for safer roads is education. And I, I'm very optimistic that in the next 15 years, especially as as my wife calls this, she works in, in healthcare, the silver tsunami is coming, there will be more people that want to maintain their mobility, but are gonna need this level of access. So I, I'm very optimistic that that as many of us are gonna have family members that that are gonna be needing this type of mobility and it's gonna become more commonplace that it's only going to make the problem more identifiable and get people more on board with, with this, but there's going to have to be that education for a solution regardless of what the tech is, whether it's plastic, rubber, curb, uh, curb changes, all the way to wireless communication. And even for the, the, um, the the community that's, that's looking for like low vision community. I mean, uh, a little plug for my friend, Mike May, Ben, you and I ran into him at CES who, who created, um, Uh, accessible GPS and good maps for indoor navigation, like on the ends of the spectrum, there has to be communication around um, what we're trying to accomplish here. Otherwise there, there's not going to be a change. We're just going to end up seeing the, uh, the cone bars in in your world, or in my world, it's going to be a UPS driver or FedEx driver double parked in front of the green paint and then puts us into a lane. I mean that, that, without that education about what this means, it's not going to get any better.
0: Yeah, I I think it's also just important to call out the fact that, um, you know, ADA is already law and accessibility should not be an option for, you know, a city that's granting permits or or a contractor. So where I say, you know, we're not going to blame the contractor if they were granted a permit for setting up a work zone in a certain way. Cities also have to feel supported in uh, prescribing accessible sidewalk closures. And know that yeah it, it um it might mean investing maybe more money, but that's it's it is it is the law i mean it is about accessibility and accessibility is not an option, and I think it's important that you know anybody who has uh, any any amount of influence in terms of how those uh sidewalk closures are set up that that they you know take a stance and 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 try to advocate or you know advocate that you know we not delay any further it's been thirty one years hey man, love it so let's let's transition a little bit into tech so ben i when we
1: met uh, i think it's almost been a year and a half now like this was you guys have a ton of experience in technology, but it's material science and physics type uh type pieces where obviously uh we're coming at this from the tome team now Valtech is zeros and ones and software and and bluetooth and wi fi c v you know you name it type type tech so you got thrown in face first. I mean, you went to ITS, uh, the Intelligent Transportation system show in Los Angeles with us and Ford and, and a few other our partners, you, you went to CES. So this is like, this is a whole new dimension, right? For PSS is getting in addition to visual audible, physical type things to get into the cab of a car or to inform a VRU. Now we're talking, talking, um, Digital, right? I mean, so like, what what was some of the biggest takeaways you've seen getting thrown into this thing? Like, like what's what's been some of from from a lens coming from from your from your seat? How how has that been so far?
0: I think it's humbling. I would I would say, Um, you know, the we're used to building products that have tooling, um, you know, and so there's a there's a point at which you pull the trigger, and you know, V one is going to look like V one looks like, you know, the first version. So uh, You know, adding technology or overlaying that on top, Um, it, uh, you know, I think we've talked about this, Jake, it's a a little bit of a blessing and a curse, right? Um, You can spend a lot of money really quickly on things that might not help at all in terms of advancing, you know, uh, vulnerable road user safety. So I think it's important what we've found is to rely on the expertise of people who've, who've been there before. And we've been very fortunate to uh, find you guys, to find Tome, among other companies that have helped guide us and curate our entry into tech. I think without guidance, it's uh, easy to become distracted.
1: Well, thank you for that. And, and to the the full folks on the Tome safety team that I know are listening, I, I think that for a lot of our listeners too, I think kind of the key here is, is how, and that's not new for, I mean, I before we got into safety work. I worked a lot in, um, what historically is called the IOT or digital transformation movements. And back then we used to say, and i it's probably been years since I've said this, but like the word connected toaster, like you want to avoid a connected toaster at all costs. So like the idea of a connected construction barrel or a connected, um, Cone bar or like some other connected system and cone bar would be the worst example because that's not a a approved product. But and I you say it intentionally to say that you gotta be selective about what the connection is. And going back to what we talked about earlier in the show about the um the DOT and I believe you said it was Kansas that came to you on the we need to get in the cab, right? To prevent these these um um incidents from happening in the future, that that's use case, that that consumer experience, the driver experience is still there. It's like how do you get into that cab? So What we're a lot of this, like what we're thinking about, is taking exactly the use cases that you know are they need. First of all, most importantly, you know that they work and they're safe. That that that's that's like for number one, too. But also, they're they're legal. They comply with the right regs. And if there are things that we need to adopt and change, that we have it out there. So, I'm kind of curious to go a little bit deeper that. You guys have your groups. I mean, you've got ATSA, you've got like all these different groups that would align on the tech side with groups like f- that. Most listeners know about Five GAA or the Consumer Technology Association, IEEE, like these other SAE, these standard um, uh, groups. These they call them SDOs that like that that have this. So, as tech is coming into your world, how how is it going to be? What's your uh, foresight on how that's going to be embraced, and what do we need to do to be successful for bringing? vehicle technology into your communities that historically have been, um, like you said earlier, like how they develop you. First thing you said is cheeky is slow. Like how, what what do we need to do to get this type of tech work that's already been ongoing and in many cases been going for 15 years, but but bring it in and so it can be embraced and supported. And then on the tech side, we can learn from your side how we're going to get this right.
0: I think we are a long way from autonomous vehicles replacing human drivers. You know, yes, there are, you know, ADAS systems are accelerating at an impressive rate, you know, as far as their capabilities, but, you know, there are two areas where autonomous functionality in vehicles is not permitted to operate. One is school zones and the other is work zones because they are two notoriously unpredictable stretches of roadway. PSS does not believe that traffic control devices, you know, existing traffic control devices, that we're going to see any reduction in temporary traffic control devices needed on the roadway in the near future. What we do anticipate is that every, what we call IOOs, or infrastructure owner operators, right, that could be a state agency or a tolling authority or tolling agency, that they want to overlay technology onto the hardware. And I think it's also important to understand, well, what's the goal? right? Why are we trying to do this? Are we doing it for, you know, ultimately, you know, ADAS uh, functionality? Are we doing it for, you know, road worker safety? Are we doing it for generating data to evaluate the effectiveness of work zone design? I'm not sure that any of those would preclude necessarily us from benefiting in another vein, but I do think that that might influence the priorities as far as how we, how this technology is adopted at the state agency level We see technology and transportation, you know, first and foremost, providing advanced warning to motorists, right? So similar to what RoadQuake's doing, you know, the benefit being reduced congestion, reduced transit times, reduced crashes. And as I mentioned, right, generating data to evaluate the effectiveness of work zones and product effectiveness, new product effectiveness, that's going to be a, a big opportunity for technology on the road. And so can technology help us better understand the products that are already on the road so, as opposed to technology being a product in and of itself, right? I think that there's got to be some interaction, some interoperability between tech and the hardware that's that's currently in use. I think that's a good guidance, and I can
1: share in the reason why what you're doing at PSS is so important to what we're doing in the bike lane and within the vehicle to vehicle community is that we cannot do what we're doing without having support and acceptance from your world because you guys are out there you're vulnerable road users we're also taking people that wouldn't even be on the road and because of of uh, temporary uh, work sites putting those people into the road where they become a vru or otherwise they they wouldn't even be in the in the the danger zone vulnerability zone per se so how we do that integration is um what i think is super exciting and we have a lot of lessons learned to pull from and a process to get it right. And I mean, we're not perfect. You know, we never, I don't think in American history we ever got it right the first time, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll innovate right our way to be successful across this. So um, I'm excited to have you in there.
0: Uh, well, I appreciate that. Um, you know, one thing that we have going for us is, um, and again, I another, <laughs> another thing I can't, I can't believe we've made it this far in the podcast without talking about is the work zone data exchange and just the the role that that plays right as prescribed by the the federal highway administration at uh, having simple open specifications that are widely adopted right to to save lives so having consistent data generated by work zones across this country and in using that as a guide for that interaction that you describe between how does technology interact with what's out there and ultimately it's it's well, how do we make sure that we generate the data as prescribed by the Workstone Data Exchange? And then ultimately also how do we make sure that the Workstone Data Exchange is capturing the data, right, that is gonna be most critical to keeping vulnerable road users safe. Yeah, we showed that uh that Workstone
1: Data Exchange WZDX, which we'll put a link for for that in the show notes as well. It's a USDOT uh supported. Specification and framework. Uh, we we showed this off with Ford and and others at ITS in Los Angeles, and then we had a, a giant sign with a variable speed limit at from uh, one of our friends at Wonko uh, hooked us up with the sign there and showed that and and demonstrating with WZDX. And uh, I got to tell you, I I was shocked with the amount of interest we received from the automotive community. I'd say four or five years ago, that just was not the case. I mean, they were just like, okay, this is kind of cute, you know, whatever. And then now it's like, okay, this is, it's getting real. So, I mean, we're seeing applications for this. And again, you know, we've got to be, uh, we got to be technology solving a problem and, and we're, we're using this tech to solve a known problem that everyone agrees is, is known and important. Um, not just like, Hey, here's some new tech. What can we use this tech for to make the world better? And And that's, been very clear for the past few months and um some people call these day one use cases or mvp or uh, depending on what what uh organization you're from but that's that's been kind of the move so i mean we're really excited to get that that tech rolling in so uh um ben i'm i'm really uh thankful for sharing some thoughts and uh, i i know that i've been thinking a lot about some of the stories you talked about earlier and how they apply to things that we're coming into so thank you for that so before we wrap up, I always like to ask all of our hosts, what are your favorite podcasts or newsletters or trade events, uh, personal or business that uh, you'd like to share with our listeners, and we'll put the links to this in the show notes.
0: <laughs> sure, Sure. yeah, on the podcast front, one that I really enjoy listening to is first round review by first round Capital. There's a lot of a lot of tidbits on tactical business operations that i've I've found useful. So, there's that. And then also uh, maybe a more mainstream one would be uh, how I built this by Guy Raz. So, you know, it's a standard. I know you didn't ask this, but on the book front, because when you asked me this, I, my mind went straight to the book that I'm reading right now, right? Build by Tony Fidel, which we've talked about, which I love. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, so I'd recommend that. But
1: a lot of noise about build. And I, I, I actually, I know Tony. He's really cool. Um, I was fortunate enough to meet him about two or three years ago. And um, I can tell you, there's been a lot of, uh, a lot of, a lot of good vibes post pandemic around building better and, um, you know, from the automotive community. So I'm, I'm glad what well, unexpected, but glad that, that Tony's getting the plug today. He's, he's super cool. Uh, yeah.
0: <laughs> well, he deserves it. If you haven't read the book, I encourage you to pick it up on the newsletter front. Uh, Ashto. Ashto has a daily transportation update, which is fantastic. Uh, as far as just what's going on. Is that what it's called? The daily transportation update? Yeah. DTU. DTU. Yeah. So we'll put that link in the show notes as well.
1: I didn't even know what Ashto was until we started talking to you guys, but it's kind of cool to get a, a good aggregated list of like what's going on. So, I mean, we try to do our job in the, in the bike lane uh, newsletter. So by the way, for any of you that are listening to this, that aren't in the newsletter, we also send out a newsletter with some of our blog posts and aggregated links, but ashto has been, I mean, it's just for us, it's just really interesting that we're on a lot of the same topics, but just didn't really, we weren't communicating. We didn't know that we were all doing a lot of the same things.
0: I was going to put the plug in there for the bike lane, of course. Oh, yeah, yeah, obviously, obviously. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, And then, you know, ITS America is a valuable source I found um, for, you know, technology news and transportation. On the trade show front, we just uh, completed uh, participating in the 2023 ATSA show in Phoenix, Arizona um, which uh, just concluded. You guys won an award there too, right? Uh, our, yeah. Our latest, uh, product, a folding cone. Um, it's, a, a new reinventing the, the standard, uh, cone. So we're, we're excited about it and it's, um, you know, target market of, uh, fire, uh, roadside assistance, uh, police. So it's a, a little bit of a different market for us, but, you know, obviously, you know, emergency responders are vulnerable road users too. So we're passionate about advocating, and fighting for their safety. That yeah, well. quick
1: plug: check out First Guard on the PSS site and um, at, at the CES booth. We were having demonstrations of how to deploy uh, the First Guard using a one hand uh, flick. It, it was uh, it was pretty fun. So yeah, and then when you throw it, it's got to land upright. So we had a little bit of fun with it too uh, at the show. So keeping it safe, but having fun while we're doing
0: it. So uh, yeah, thanks for that.
1: And uh, last question, how can our listeners get in touch with uh, you or the PSS team?
0: Yeah. So if uh, any listeners are interested in following what PSS is doing on the technology front, uh, feel free to send an email to smartcities at pss-innovations, that's plural, dot com. So I imagine we'll put the uh, email address in the the show notes. Please follow uh, PSS on uh, LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, We're often posting videos on YouTube as well. Uh, Feel free to uh, reach out to me directly on uh, LinkedIn. Follow me on LinkedIn for, for other updates. Awesome, awesome.
1: And that was Ben Gascoyne, Vice President and General Manager at PSS. I'm your host, Jake Siegel. Thanks again for listening and see you next time in the bike lane.